friends, are you a big picture person or a little picture person? Uh, Big picture people, they say, see things in the sort of big overall goals. Uh, Big picture people have big grand schemes about things. Big picture people dream big dreams. They're the ones who cast the big visions. They they set the big directions. Uh, Little picture people are the ones who agonise over the details, though. Uh, These are the people who love to-do lists and and spreadsheets. These are people who focus on the small steps that need to be taken in order to get to where you're going. And so often it's said that if the big-picture people are the drivers, uh, small-picture people are the engine. Things just don't happen without them. Well, they really, things don't happen without both sorts of people, do they? What's the point of having a big, grand plan if you can't actually organise the steps to achieve it? And, of course, if you don't have the big plan, chances are you'll end up making small steps, okay, but they'll just be going round and round in circles. Big picture people, small picture people, uh, we need them both. No matter which one you are, you're needed. The good thing about God is that he is both. I mean, on the one hand, God is a very big picture God. And routinely in the Bible, you get those instances where God announces these really big sweeping, ambitious plans. We actually heard one of them last week when God announced to Israel, who though they were suffering under exile, he announced to Israel that he had plans to prosper them and not to harm them. Or as we noticed last week, uh, God had plans to give them shalom. And that last week was very much God in big picture mode as he cast the grand plan. Here's the big direction I'm taking you. I have, I, I, I have a desire for shalom for you. Now, friends, if that, was the, if that was God in big picture mode last week, this week he's moving into small picture mode. As tonight, God starts to roll out some of the details about how he intends to achieve shalom, peace, tranquility, security for his people. Now, I say some of the details because over the next few chapters there's going to be a lot more details as well. But here in chapter 30, God is starting to get the ball rolling by describing three key steps that he intends to take in order to bring shalom for his people. And the way the chapter works is that God flags each of the three steps with a bit of a word formula. So you look down at verse 4. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Now that little phrase in verse 5, this is what the Lord says, that's a bit of a marker in this chapter that something important is about to be said, that it's the start of a new little section. If you glance through the chapter, you'll see it gets repeated three times. Verse 5, that one we just noticed. There's another one in verse 12 and another one in verse 18. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. It's repeated three times, and every time it is, it's functioning as a bit of a dot point in the text. It's, it's, a, it's the introduction to a new key element in God's plan. It's singling a new small step as to how God intends to bring in the big plan of shalom. Let's see how it works because it turns out to have something to say to us. Verse 5 again. This is what the Lord says. There's our dot point. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labour, every face turned deathly pale? How awful that day will be. None will be like it. 
It'll be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he'll be saved out of it. Now, these opening verses about people crying and even strong men screaming in pain like a woman giving birth, it's references to how awful the exile is going to be for Israel. That it'll be a time of despair and anguish and uncertainty. A day so awful that, Jeremiah says there in verse 7, none will be like it. And notice that it is a future tense, none will be like it. It's future because Jeremiah is actually predicting all this terrible stuff before it even happens. Which might, for some of you, might be a little confusing. I mean, last week the exile had already started, hadn't it? Remember last week, Jeremiah was writing off a letter to the exiles who were already living in Babylon. So the exile, in a sense, has started. But what we've got to understand is that in history, the exile, when Babylon conquered Israel, it happened in waves, stages. The first few waves, they weren't too bad. Well, they weren't all that good. Uh, People were killed, battles were fought, prisoners were taken. But it wasn't until the final waves of the exile that things got really ugly. That's when Babylon came through and totally trashed uh, Israel. There were terrible sieges, uh, enormous uh, battles, thousands uh, killed and destroyed buildings. That's when the infrastructure of Israel was completely levelled. It was in the final stages of the exile that the temple, for example, was destroyed. But you see, like last week, here in chapter 30, Jeremiah is prophesying all of this, yes, at the exile, but at the very beginning of it. And here he's saying, guys, it's actually going to get worse. This is going to get much worse. How awful will all those final days be? None will be like it. And yet the turning point in verse 7, it'll be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. Verse 8, In that day, that is the day of salvation, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks. I will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Friends, here's the first key step. Here's the first key element of God's plan to bring shalom to his people. Step one, he's going to save them out of their distress. Or as it's briefly put in verse 11, I am with you and will save you. Yes, you're going to have to be punished. Yes, you can't get out of that. There will be an exile, but it will not be my final word. After the exile will come salvation. Notice also that there's going to be a particular person involved in all of this. Verse 8 again. In that day, I'll break the yoke off their necks. I'll tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, there's an interesting verse. God's going to raise up for them David their king. That's an intriguing thing to say because, of course, this is hundreds of years after David had actually died. So what God is, what he must be saying here is that there's going to be a new David somehow in all of this. There's going to be a new king in the line of David coming up. And so for the original readers of Jeremiah, this was all a bit intriguing, a little bit exciting. A day is coming when after the exile, God will bring salvation and central to it all will be a king in the line of David. Gee, I wonder how that's going to work. We need to press on. Step two in God's plan gets even better. Verse 12 again. This is what the Lord says. Remember, there's our dot point. Here's a new thought. Verse 12. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. 
Now, this section again picks up talking about how terrible the exile is, and now it's depicting the exile as an incurable disease, an incurable wound, an inescapable and untreatable illness. It's, it's painting the picture that this exile that they're going to have to go through, it's unavoidable. It's an unavoidable punishment. Why? Well, because of their sin. The second half of verse 15 tells us that. Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. See the logic here? It's almost as if you've got this picture that sin and guilt are like a germ in Israel, just like we might get a germ through our body. And if your body is riddled with a germ, say riddled with the flu virus, it is just going to be inevitable that you will feel sick as a dog. Well, Israel is riddled with sin and guilt. And so the exile, it's just unavoidable. It is a wound that is incurable. And yet, look what he goes on to say in verse 17. But I will restore you to health and heal your wound. Now, do you see the twist? In verse 13, God has just said that their wound is incurable. Now in verse 17, he's saying that he's going to cure it. How does that work? If an illness is beyond healing, in what sense can you talk about healing it? The text is being deliberately intriguing to us. And it's toying with the fact that something very big is going on in this stage of God's plan. Something very ambitious, something very bold, something very extravagant is going on in this plan. For now, here is a step in the plan on the road to Shalom. Here is a step where God, it would seem, must be going to do something radical about, well, about sin. Because if sin, if guilt is the germ that's making them have an illness beyond healing, and yet now God says he's going to heal them, he must be going to do something about the germ, mustn't he? Sounds like he's going to do something about sin and guilt. All of which is starting to get a bit of a roll on here and these little small steps on the way to the big picture of shalom suddenly all these small steps aren't sounding all that small at all after the exile god's going to save his people involving a king in the line of david and now not only save his people but heal his people from sin and guilt this plan's starting to take on epic proportions And we're not even finished yet. Verse 18. This is what the Lord says. Uh, There's our dot point. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I'll add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honour and they will not be disdained. Now, there's a whole lot of catalogue of uh, really good stuff being described in these verses, but I think the key thing to notice is that in this, the third step that's being rolled out in God's plan, the key thing I think to notice is that all the good things listed out here are, are sort of echoes of what God has promised or had promised Abraham, Israel's forefather, back in Genesis. Many of you know the story. Back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be numerous that they'd have their own land, that they'd be blessed uh, and be God's people. Well, all those thoughts are now rolled up here and they're sort of getting repeated. 
God promised Abraham that he'd have numerous descendants. In verse 19, we've just heard, I will add to their number and they will not be decreased. God promised Abraham they get to live in their own special place. Now here in verse 18, he's saying, look, the city's going to be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. And he promised Abraham that his descendants would be blessed. And in verse 19, again, he's saying, I'll bring them honour. They will not be disdained. And I think we're meant to be seeing here in this third step that it's all circling back to the promises of Abraham as God is effectively saying that in his grand plan to bring shalom to his people, one of the steps he's got along the way is that he's now going to achieve everything that he previously promised to Abraham. Which is all neatly summarised in verse 22. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Which is effectively his promise to Abraham. From you... I will bring my people and I will be their God. And friends, I think we are meant to be seeing, therefore, that this is an enormous plan that God is starting to unroll here before us. I mean, last week, that initial idea of bringing shalom to his people, that was big enough. But now as God starts to roll out the details, the whole thing is just getting bigger and bigger. The whole thing is just getting more and more sweeping in its in its scope because now we've got a new king david we've got salvation after the exile we've got sin and guilt being dealt with in a way that hadn't been dealt with before we've got promises to abraham being delivered on and in all honesty for the israelites at the time when jeremiah was saying this sort of stuff when he was prophesying these sorts of words this was just really hard for them to get their heads around remember these are guys sitting in exile These are people who are being crushed under the might of Babylon and you've got all this incredible plan being rolled out before them. And I can imagine them sitting in Babylon, scratching their heads and thinking, this sounds great, but how how on earth is it going to work? It sounds good, but it it sounds too good to be sure. How on earth are all these pieces actually going to fit together? Is this plan ever really going to fly? And then Jesus steps into history. And the plan flies. And every piece comes together. Think about all the things we've just seen. Uh, God saving his people out of judgment with a king of David. Well, no prizes for guessing. That's Jesus. Uh, The direct descendant of David and a king who went to the cross for his people. Taking our punishment on himself so that we wouldn't have to. So that we would be healed from the sickness, guilt and sin. And in so doing, he fulfilled every single one of God's promises to Abraham. The forming of a special people of God, you are it. The blessing of that people, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The inheriting of a new place, a special place, a new creation, a new heaven and earth. Friends, everything spoken of in this chapter, it's happened, it's been delivered on. The big plan has been fulfilled and it's all to do with Jesus. The big idea of shalom, the steps along the way, it is all to do with Jesus and what he has achieved. And I reckon that's really helpful. It's helpful at one level just to be reminded of all the great things that have happened for us through Christ, that we have been healed from guilt and sin, that we have been saved from distress, that we have a new creation to look forward to, that that we are the recipients of the promises that have been fulfilled to Abraham. All those things are great to luxuriate in and, and we'll do a little bit about, uh, of that 
next week as well. But I think it's also good to have a reality check and to just step back and see how every single one of these steps along the way, it's all Jesus who pulls it together. That it's Jesus who is at the very centre of God's purposes and plans. Because I reckon that's a good reality check for us that, that we should be making Jesus the centre of our purposes and plans as well. Because we are forever being bombarded, aren't we, with, with, with other stuff to fill our lives with. And what we're being reminded of here tonight is as far as God's concerned, when he, when he, when he thinks in big picture mode, when he thinks in small picture mode, it's all Jesus. In a book on prayer, Dorothy Haskins tells about a famous concert violinist who was once asked how she got to be so good at playing the violin. The uh, woman answered the question with two words, planned neglect. Planned neglect. She went on to explain that um, there were many things that used to press in on her time. You know, it's like she'd, she'd get up and she'd have breakfast and she'd uh, make a bed and straighten her room and dust everything and she'd have to do everything that was necessary. And when, when she finished all that stuff, then she'd practice the violin. And she reckoned that stopped her from accomplishing what she, what she could. So she said, I reversed things. I deliberately planned to neglect everything else until my practice period was complete. And that program of planned neglect is the secret of my success. I wonder whether we need to practice some planned neglect in our lives when it comes to Jesus. You know, you turn on the telly, you read the magazines, you listen to the... It, we, at life's just been thrown so many things at us. Who's lost weight? Who's put on weight? Who cares? What movies are out? Whether Brad and Angelina are still together or not. We've just been constantly throwing stuff in our face. And I think a passage like this is reminding us, look, Jesus is at the centre of God's plans. Make sure he's at the centre of yours. Practice some planned neglect. And instead of putting off things to do with Jesus until you've finished all the other stuff that you've got going around, perhaps you need to plan to neglect a few more activities in order to give Jesus the priority that he deserves. Plan neglect. Might be a bad idea. And to that end, look, I guess I just want to encourage you for being here tonight. I want to encourage you for being here and working at keeping central the things that matter most. Good on you for turning up on what's been a cold, bleak day so as to read the Bible together, so as to encourage each other at following Jesus. Good on you for doing that. Good on you for getting together in one-on-one or small groups throughout the week to do the same sort of thing. It, It takes effort to keep focused on Jesus in this life. But if nothing else, I'm thinking tonight's passage is telling us that it's worth doing. Because tonight we've been privy to God's plan, the big plan to bring shalom and the steps along the way, being saved, being healed of sin, God keeping his promises to Abraham. We'll see more stuff next week. But at every point along the way, Jesus is the one at the very centre of it. I think that's a good reality check that he ought to be at the very centre of all the steps in our life as well. Let me pray. Father, it is just extraordinary the things that you have done, 
throughout history so as to bring us to this point in our life of being your saved children. Thank you. Thank you for shalom in all its fullness that we have to look forward to. Thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus, for the healing that you have brought to us in forgiving us and setting us free from the power of sin and guilt. Thank you that you've formed us into your special people when we don't deserve it, that you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing that we look forward to in new creation. Father, thank you for all those things. But also thank you tonight for reminding us that at the very centre of each and every step stands Jesus Christ. Father, we're sorry for the times that we don't put Jesus at the very centre of all the aspects of our life. Uh, Please help us to do it. If need be, help us to start practising some planned neglect so that Jesus has centre stage where he belongs in all that we do. Amen.